Welcome everyone and what a tremendous pleasure it is to be hosting a supporters podcast for a championship club. A season that started with disappointment, a short period of disillusionment, borderline despair as home defeats to Doncaster Rovers and AFC Wimbledon caused much consternation, but ended ultimately with a mission accomplished at the keep moat. The one-season loan to League One has come to an end. This is very much a special episode, a collaboration podcast you might say, as it features contributions from a fan site launched just last summer, which has gone from strength to strength, including, of course, producing their own weekly podcast. The editor of the newly relaunched Rovers fanzine, a blogger supreme on matters usually involving some combination of Rovers, Manchester, Northern Rail and politics, and last but by no means least, an all-round good egg and opinion for hire, though we may just have forgotten to tell him there's no fee for appearing on this. We also have a pre-recorded section from the Las Vegas-bound Lancashire Telegraph Rovers reporter, Rich Sharp, and that's well worth waiting for, as Rich looks back across what has proved to be a memorable season. That's the headlines. Let's fill in the details. Our first guest is already a podcast veteran, albeit at a tender age. You may know him from the weekly 1875 podcast and, of course, the Rovers chat site. It's Tom Schofield. Tom, a warm welcome and great to have you with us. How are you this evening? Uh, fantastic. It's been a fairly good few days, hasn't it? What with um, the celebration yesterday. So, yeah, it's... I couldn't have asked for much more, really. Good stuff. Now you've come from you're joining us tonight on this massive collaboration podcast from the Rovers Chat website. Tell us a little bit about Rovers Chat because some of the people listening to this pod might—I know it's an odd thing—but they might just not be aware of it. What's, what's Rovers Chat all about? Started Rovers Chat in the summer, specifically 16th of July 2017. Um, I think we felt there was a lack of a fan page where lots of fans could write for. Obviously, you've got your own um, forum, but right. We wanted to create something that was a, a news site, I suppose. So there's plenty of Twitter fan can, Twitter fan accounts as well. So you've got a talk of Eildon, um, I think Rovers tweets. Um, but we wanted to create something a bit extra as well. I think a lot of us have been interested in writing for quite a while. Mano Dan, who runs the um, main page, had worked with um, Football League World, um, but he really wanted something to hone in on the um, Rovers, the Rovers team, really. Right. Um, I think we've been lucky enough to interview players. You know, there's like Brad Friedel, Derek Vizakli, and Mike Newell. Um, those are just three, as well as Alan Myers, which was really interesting actually, because obviously he was with the club at a time where we were really struggling. But yeah, that's basically it. We just wanted to create something for Rovers fans where they could really look at a site that that cared about what they wanted to read about. Because I think we've only really got the the Telegraph, and other than that. For, for news sites we're, we're struggling really BBC don't really care and Sky well particularly in League One I think that's that's the difficulty isn't it when you drop down the table uh, you almost you fall out of people's uh, cognizance totally uh, I think what you, what you guys have done from a standing start has been a very very impressive indeed I think it's, it's a tremendous start and I just think the more fan activity we've got and stuff like that the more enthusiastic people are that can only be a good thing you've got the weekly podcast of course which I'm sure we all listen to I certainly do what's what's the reaction been to uh, to your pod yeah it's been fantastic I mean um, I think we're all we're a young team to be honest with you I think that that Dan's only 19 18 so you know he's, he's running it there and doing a fantastic job and with the, with the podcast I think Lee's uh, mid-20s and to 
the people that have listened to it have all come back with positive positive feedback and that means a lot even if just 10 people listened to it and those 10 people all said that it was something they enjoyed listening to that would be enough for me to uh, continue to do it but yeah we've really enjoyed doing the weekly podcast it's something that I enjoy talking about it saves me talking to myself about Blackburn so <laughs> there's that <laughs> you're in good company then in that case yeah yeah but yeah, it's, it really has been fantastic. Excellent. And what are your plans and hopes for next season? Anything special on the cards? We'd just really love the site to grow. I think we want to reach um, as big as an audience as possible. I think that one thing we're really interested in is um, working with YouTube. So hopefully, maybe, you know, producing more content, whether that be like a match day vlog or um, something like that. Um, so if there's anyone out there that's listening to this and fancies contributing to, to that side of things, then contact um the rovers chat twitter and then um hopefully we'll be able to find something that we can that we can put together but yeah that's that's a, that's one thing we'd really love to grow and just finding ways for the site to move to move forward that's the main thing we want to be able to have this last like BRF, brfcs has possibly can and, and and create something that fans can continue to coming back to excellent very good. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. You're very welcome. And uh, I think it, anybody who hasn't visited the page, I'd certainly uh, urge you to. And anybody who hasn't listened to the podcast, again, I'd urge you to subscribe. So, next up uh, is a man who, in the digital age, decided to relaunch a paper-based fanzine. He's nothing if not challenging the orthodox, and perhaps uh, he's a born optimist. Warm welcome to editor of the Reborn 4000 Holes magazine and owner of a singing voice that only a mother could love. That's a reference to anybody who's listened to our Christmas special. It's Scott Sumner. Scott, are you going to be serenading us again tonight? Definitely not. I think that was a, a one-off for the Christmas special. I'll uh, stick to stick to my normal voice tonight, I think. Oh, very disappointing, very disappointing. Maybe we'll get you on a special round later on, then we'll see how it goes. How sales gone of the magazine this year, Scott? Uh, really impressed. Obviously, at the start of the season, after the relaunch of 4,000 Holes, I didn't know whether there'd still be people wanting to read that kind of thing, you know, in a hard copy paper format. Um, I didn't have a clue whether we'd sell, say, 50, 100, or whatever. Um, but there's a rough calculation, which I've just done this evening, over the course of this season, we've actually sold 1,600 copies, which is quite impressive, averaging about 300 of each issue. But this final edition of the season um, practically sold out. I've only got about 10 left, so you know, you haven't got it. It's, it's another great one, so um, still available to buy. And what plans do you have next season? You're going to carry on, I take it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I just think continue the progression, really. Um, I think I've been lucky enough to have so many good contributors, uh, as there is probably 10 regular people, and you know, odd ones who come in here and there and do bits. Um, so I think just continue that progression, and uh, yeah, new new contributors are always welcome. And I think the next challenge is, is trying to get the younger fan base involved because I've found this season that it's generally been the, the older, older guys, say, you know, middle-aged and older who originally got it back in the early 90s. And, and they, they all tell me, oh, I used to get this in the early 90s. It's, it used to be absolutely brilliant and still, still, still going. You're doing a good job still. Um, obviously, the younger fans maybe not aware of what a fanzine actually is and what it's supposed to be. Fortunately, I've, there's a few young people who have started to become regulars and they've really got into it and enjoy reading it. Um, so I think just try and 
develop that and uh, yeah, push on sales to Excellent. maybe 400, 500. Or maybe you can write something for Tom's site and Tom can persuade people to buy your fanzine. That's, uh, there's obviously some yeah, well, mutuality going on there. Well, yeah, I've actually um, put up a couple of my pieces this season on Rover's Chat, which have been in the fanzine previously, just as, you know, get it out there in a different place. So it's kind of good that I know obviously there's a lot of people out there doing bits you know as we like to say by the fans for the fans um, <laughs> but I think ev- everyone's got their own sort of identity like the Rovers chat it's a it's a fan thing but it's very much a it looks like a professional thing it does, yeah. and then yeah. um, obviously you've got the forum where you know everyone can reel off the thoughts as they do and then obviously the fanzines are a totally different thing Again, it's you know it's an irreverent look at, at Rovers, um, just a, a, a bit of a more light-hearted look. Um, so it's good that everyone's got their own little place in the marketplace, if you like. Fabulous. Well, thanks for that. Now, our next guest can blog on demand. He is the Richie Smallwood of Talk, TalkSport 2. In other words, he never gives a call away. Prolific, eloquent and passionate in equal measure on a wide range of topics, it's the man behind the Marple Leaf blog. And tonight he's got a new microphone and he's going to use it. Yes, it's Michael Taylor. How does it feel to be treated to another pod appearance, Michael? Oh, fantastic, Ian. Always always great to be back on the pod. Can there be any other existence out there? And finally on our panel tonight is a fellow Sheffield-based Rovers fan. I've shamelessly nicked the line from Danny Baker and Danny Kelly even before, but it bears repeating. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always certain. It's the pre-season prediction wizard himself, and I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more about that later on, Mike Dilap. Mike, how's it going? Hear that sound, guys? That's the sound of smugness. It's I'm very, very well. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to be back, as always. Well, it comes across brilliantly in audio format, I have to say. That's one of, one of your best acts. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you on board, Mike. So, you've heard from the panel, let the collaboration pod commence. Right, so the first theme that we're going to consider on tonight's pod, uh, we've got to start really with yesterday, because it was just such a, an extraordinary day in, in so many respects. We've got people arriving way, way before kickoff, and obviously a, an amazing atmosphere. Tom, as, as one of the uh, the younger members of the pod, in fact, the, the very much the youngest member of the pod, was this uh, a new, new sight and, um, and sound for you guys? What did you think of yesterday? I remember it very, very vaguely being um, busy. Um, I think my my season ticket, I first got it in the second to last season, the Prem. So I remember it being around 25,000 on. But to have so many people there before kickoff was just, it it was incredible. Because I've said before in in things for Rovers chat that I was too young to experience the, um, the, the Premier League winning season. And then... I was only very, well, I wasn't born for the Premier League season, but for the um, promotion back to the Premier League and then the um, Worthington Cup success, I was two and three years old. So I definitely wasn't old enough to to remember um, that. So to experience something like yesterday, to have so many people arrive so soon was just, it was fantastic. I, I honestly, I know we'll speak about the pitch invasion later on, but despite that, it was just... Um, it was it was the perfect day for me personally to have so many people at Ewood. Was it twenty seven thousand around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Virtually full house. So it was a few pockets here and yeah, there, but not many. So it was fantastic just to experience that. Was for the Doncaster game. Um, it's honestly my my best my best experience ever supporting this uh, marvelous football club. Fantastic. 
Scott, what did you make of the atmosphere yesterday? Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I mean, a number of people said it, it's just like the Premier League again. Um, and it reminded me actually of, of the last game of the season, 2002, where we, we beat Fulham 3-0 and sneaked into the top half, paraded the Worthington Cup and just that feel-good factor again coming back, um, which we obviously haven't, haven't seen much of recently. I think the... Um, Probably the best thing about it was the number of families and young children there because, you know, they're the next generation of fans and you, you want to get them, you know, involved in, in, in good days like this to see that it can be an enjoyable experience to come and watch the Rovers because um, the last thing we want is a, a, a block missing of 10 years of fans who, who just weren't engaged at the right time. So hopefully, you know, the past five or six years are in the past now and we can look forward to ever increasing attendance. Yeah, that's fingers crossed. Mike, feel good factor, is it back? It, yeah, of course it is. It definitely is. I mean, I don't think anyone's daft enough to, you know, not accept that in football feel good factors are a very fragile thing. If we start the season badly next year and end up near the bottom, you know, it, it'll go. It'll go. But for this time and this season, it's it's been there and I think everybody would probably accept and agree that really, although we've obviously finished second, which some clever clogs predicted quite correctly at the start of the season, uh, you know, we've, we've got promoted at the first attempt, which is all great achievements. Really, that is absolutely Tony Mowbray's number one accomplishment is bringing that feel-good factor back because it's a very, very difficult football club in recent times to bring from the type of mentality we have to or have had to the type of mentality we have now where everyone is proud and loves being a Blackburn fan again. It's uh, it's it's brilliant to see. Michael, there was a lot of uh, love around the stadium, at least early doors. Uh, we'll move on chronologically shortly, but before kick-off, what did you make of the throngs outside the stadium? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, this is, let's not forget, this is a fan base that has suffered, you know, division, people turning on each other, bitterness, all the rest of it. And it really felt like we'd all come together. Rovers... You know, a new pricing strategy, getting loads of other fans who haven't been for a long time to come back to the club. It was just amazing. And I just looked around and thought, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, it's a good job nothing did. Or did it? Well, well, I'm, I'm never... I've never wanted to criticise Rovers fans. I, you know, each to their own, and I'm certainly not going to break that habit by talking about all those morons who ran on the pitch yesterday. <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't special, was it, Mike? What was your take on this? Yeah, it wasn't particularly impressive, was it? I, I, I thought, I honestly hoped anyway that we'd left the spilling onto the pitch for the dead in in Doncaster. I found it very strange that people were invading, and I found it very strange that. People were invading 30 seconds before before any full-time whistles had been blown. I think, speaking from experience as one of the people that was there at Doncaster, I personally felt robbed of an opportunity to reciprocate a you know a, a standing ovation, a, you know a, a congratulations between players and fans. I felt slightly deprived of that because of people invading the pitch. I'm not looking at Michael Taylor wearing his bright yellow coat as a particular person here, but. Uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 strange to see. I don't understand the logic of invading the pitch. I'd much rather personally be stood in the stand and and, and accepting mutual applause between between you know the club and its yeah. achievements and 
the fans who, quite frankly, have been brilliant in the main this season as well. Tom, you maybe have an inside track for us here because, as I understand it, your uh, your dad is a is a steward. What what was the was there any pre-match briefing that you're aware of? Were there any contingency plans in place? Because it did look like they were they were caught out, shall we say? Yeah, but in terms of um. My, my um, dad, um, he uh, made me aware before the match that uh, they, they'd been told not to try and stop any pitch invasions simply because of health and safety. Um, I know uh, Mike mentioned Doncaster, um, and you saw how many tried to run on them. And I think it was more a case of just avoid any confrontation because, you know, what certain people can be like after they've had a, yeah. a few too many uh, beers. So, um from from the stewards' perspective, uh, they've been told they they've been told not to not to basically stop people from going onto the pitch, and I was quite disappointed that they did do because um, I know Mike mentioned Doncaster as well, and for me, I didn't go on the pitch at Doncaster, but I was there, and the original pitch invasion wasn't a problem for me at Doncaster simply because of all the. I suppose the turbulent times we've been through. It was it was very much the the aftermath of that, where they wouldn't then get off the pitch. But there's no excuses for yesterday for me. They didn't need to go on. And if we get any any fine or anything, then we can't complain because the the entire thing for me was a joke, and it honestly almost ruined what has been the perfect season for me. From my perspective, I'm concerned that we're starting to build up a bit of a charge sheet. I mean, Michael, we've had the guy who confronted the Burnley player, we've had the stuff thrown on the pitch at Dean Henderson. I know he threw it back, but somebody threw it on the pitch for him to enable him to throw it back. We had the Doncaster thing, which I think can be forgiven for the, well, certainly the first one, the spontaneous, yeah, at the full-time whistle. But on Saturday... This was an invasion that took place before the final whistle. Should Rovers be worried about FA action, or do you think the FA will turn a blind eye given that it's final day of the season? I think there's an element of it being final day of the season. I think you know, just scrolling down the BBC news, you can see all sorts of different clubs um, have that on the last day of the season. I mean, I, I will confess, you know, I, me and my lads, we did run on in the initial burst of joy when we secured promotion when the final whistle went at Doncaster. But we quite quickly took our seats back again after having our picture taken. Um, it's this me, me, me in the moment thing that I think um, is a bit of a worry. And the fact that actually the game hadn't finished and Rovers were still on the attack. And, you know, what a way to have actually finished the game, to have, you know, smacked another one in. Mm. That was what was most worrying to me. And I think you are right. I think there is an element of our support this season that has taken boisterousness to... Um, to, you know, too far. I think we will get away with it now. I must admit, yesterday I was I was concerned that because they come on before the final whistle, uh, that was the bit that was the aspect of it that I think gave me the most concern. But I just hope that there are, there is obviously the people that were around at the time of Hillsborough. That's why fences were up in the nineteen eighties, kids. And look what happened, yeah. you know. So and we don't want to go back to those yeah. times, uh, whether it's good natured or whatever. We just do not want to go back to those times. Anyhow. We've dealt with that. We've looked back on it. Yeah. Let's have a look at the positive stuff and a terrific season. So, in a shameless rip-off of an entertaining recent blog from somebody, I'm not quite sure who, to get us in the mood, let's have some quick hits then and we'll go round the panel. Uh, the season just ended then. So, uh, short, sharp, snappy answers are what I'm looking for here, guys, from, for in turn for each topic. Best away excursion then. So, Michael, do you want to start, seeing as we ripped off your blog? 
Yeah, Peterborough. Peterborough was fantastic. Terrible journey on a, on a hot train, but actually cold day in the stands. Great performance by the Rovers. And it was Nick Hornby who said that 3-2 victory is the best score for any fan. And that absolutely proved it, particularly as we went behind. And at no point did the fans start turning on the team or you know, a lot of the rubbish. I'd sell a lot of you. It was none of that, which I have had a couple of times this season. Indeed. Like Southend. Um, but no, it was fantastic. Scott, your best away day? I think it's got to be Doncaster, hasn't it? That's so many fans and coming together on that evening, that miserable rainy evening. And it, it just had the perfect ending because we needed a goal. And just in front of the fans, Charlie Mulgrew came up with it through a captain with a great header. And obviously the scenes after that, I know we've just mentioned the pitch invasion, but yeah, that, that's when you can accept a pitch invasion because it was just a brilliant, spontaneous moment. Obviously, it should have been curtailed a bit and people should have stayed up after that. But yeah, the, the whole day in that away end was absolutely brilliant going up. Tom, your best away day? The Bury game, I think uh, both ends sold out. And I'd probably argue it was one of the most complete performances of the season. We're at 3-0 in the end. Yeah. So I'd say that simply because of the, the noise from both ends we created. I mean, I don't know what idiot thought it was a good idea from Bury's side to give was both ends, but um, it definitely worked in our favour. So if I'm avoiding the Doncaster game, as not to repeat Scott's answer, I would um, say the Berry game. Yeah, I suspect the person at Berry that gave us both ends was the one in charge of paying the money into the bank on the Monday morning. And <laughs> 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 I wanted it to be as big a number as possible that we put on the paying in slip. But there we go. Mike, your best away day this year? I've been slightly deprived this year, guys, as the adopter of two children. But uh, yeah, it, you know, it could go on about uh, the few I've managed to do, but it's hard to really look past Doncaster, isn't it? it you know, near four thousand raging on. You know, I was I was accompanied by on that night a, a Sheffield United supporting work colleague of mine, and he actually told me he thought it was one of the best atmospheres he'd seen from any away crowd at any football game he'd seen. So, uh, if that isn't evidence, I I don't know what is. Fabulous. Uh, following on from that, then best away atmosphere, Michael. I thought Doncaster was great. I thought, like I've already said, I thought Peterborough was great. I thought Rochdale. Rochdale was fantastic. We absolutely heaved it down outside. But um, having that entire side of the ground, um, I think, really got the atmosphere going and got the fans revved up. Cool. Scott? Yeah, similar. I, th- I did enjoy a lot of these local ones around Manchester and Lancashire where we had so many fans packed in there into these old, old school stadiums and just gave us that extra voice to uh, get over the line yeah Tom Charlton a couple of games ago well the game before Oxford I just I know we lost but you know it was such a part, party atmosphere that um, the atmosphere was, was incredible and even after we'd lost there was the whole going up chant the Tony Mowbray chant so yeah I'd say Charlton excellent best away end atmosphere Mike ignoring the obvious uh, Scunthorpe away it was uh, very vocally loud and, and noticeable throughout as well, and certainly helped with the uh, sort of fairly heroic attempts at a, at a single goal victory as well. Yeah, it was early in the season that I think we were still finding our feet. Um, so it was, uh, I think the fans were still getting used to life down there. Glanford Park, for those that haven't been, is a bit like a B&Q but without the roof. I think it's got you know, all, all the appeal of a Meccano set. It's just not, not, not. Well, it certainly wouldn't fit into the next category, which is best stadium visited. Michael, what was your favourite ground? Stadium, I think I like Rotherham. Um, I, I like its size. I think it's absolutely suited to the uh, the fan base that they've got. Um, you, you can look at better grounds. I mean, I went to Coventry's ground and it's impressive, and I can imagine that would be absolutely rocking. 
But, you know, Blackpool, Wigan, Coventry, you know, they're caverns, really, that are full of empty seats. Whereas Rotherham, you know, with 12,000 in or whatever, it's, you know, it gets a really good atmosphere going. And it's, they built it just, you know, fit for purpose mm. for a club with Rotherham's, you know, realistic ambitions in mind. And you really, you really, it's very steep. So you're always sort of looking over the pitch and looking over the action, which hasn't always been the case at some other grounds yeah. this season. Yeah. Scott, your favourite ground? Favourite. I'll do it in a different way. Um, probably because I got used to going to all these old school, you know, small cramped grounds. And then suddenly walking into MK Dons last month, I went, wow, what a brilliant stadium. Brand new. Obviously, shame it's empty because, um, <laughs> you know, they've got a very small fan base. But as an actual stadium, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And it, it should really be used for something something greater than what it is in a football sense, that is. Yeah, the locals that um, I was talking to tell me that the only time that there's a good atmosphere at that ground is when there's rugby played there, which is interesting. I think they also have some rock concerts there as well, so maybe that's the time to go. Certainly, I've, I've been to the Rico at Coventry when it's been rocking, but that's because Bruce Springsteen was on stage, not because it was football. Uh, Tom, your best, uh, your favourite ground? I've got to go with Scott, to be honest with you. Like he said, you know, you go to these these grounds, I think Northampton was a bad one for me, and then you go to somewhere like MK Dons, where it was a, a really nice... And the seats were comfy as well. <laughs> they were like um, leather with like the, the cushion on, and I've, I've never experienced that at a football stadium before. I like that, at the um, at the Emirates. Are they? Yeah. Well, I could get used to it. <laughs> but, um, I'd go with Scott with that. The, um, it's an unpopular choice, of course, because of the um, yeah. team that it is and the history that surrounds them. Um, but yeah, I'd yeah. go with Scott MK Dons. Nice ground. Shame about how it came about. Uh, I totally agree with that. Mike, your favourite stadium? Well, I hope you're going to edit this next sentence out, but I, I'm going to agree with Michael Taylor. Uh, I I am a big. I've been a few times, but I absolutely love Rotherham's ground. It's uh, it's very accessible for me, but also I think it's uh, a bright, open stadium. But also feels quite compact and well suited to the number of fans that they get. And uh, wherever you sit, I feel you get a good vantage point. Which um, you know, in times where a lot of football stadiums, you lose perspective on things, is uh, is good. And I'd, I'd go every year if it was up to me. Yeah. Okay. The antithesis of that then, the worst ground, Michael. Uh, Wimbledon and I really have a heavy heart saying this I I couldn't bring myself even if I believed it to compliment MK Dons I feel quite strongly about the whole stealing their club issue but poor old Wimbledon stuck in that dreadful stadium Kings Meadow Um, I I couldn't see any of the game first half we were stuck behind the dugout second half well we got a decent view of Elliot Bennett's and Dak's goals but it was basically like like standing on the concourse of the riverside but it being absolutely packed and not really being able to see over anyone's shoulder. So for me, the worst ground was Wimbledon. I just hope that they get a new stadium in Wimbledon really soon. This, they talk about them going back to Plough Lane, aren't they? Right. Yeah, that's right. They're going to redevelop it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Scott, worst ground? Well, not wishing to pick on smaller clubs who obviously don't have the, the finances to invest. I'm going to go and say Charlton last week because although it's a great ground on three sides, the away end... The, in particular, it's just, it's just been left there. And for a 21st century stadium, for a decent-sized club like Charlton, I just didn't think it was fit for purpose for the number of fans who were in there, which was like over 3,000 Rovers fans, particularly on the concourses and, you know, the refreshments, toilets area. You know, it's absolutely manic in there. Obviously, 
a lot of boisterous fans in there and it was it, it was hard to move around more, more than I've ever felt this season actually. Tom? I would give an honourable mention or should I say a dishonourable mention to um <laughs> to uh, Charlton uh, because I do agree that it, it wasn't great. I've actually got bruises on my knees from sitting down because <laughs> I was that cramped because I'm, I'm quite tall I suppose. Um, but I'd say Northampton. I really didn't like that one. It was, it was quite cramped and it was very small. The pie was good, but but the stadium itself, I, I wasn't too impressed with them, being honest with you. There's a big story behind that because, you know, the, the, the side opposite where the players run out that looks like they've got the, the skeleton of a, of a really big stand. There's been lots of um, scandal with Northampton's city council and um, funding <laughs> disappearing, shall we say. So the, the money that was due to finish that off disappeared. And so they're left with this bizarre like, skeleton of a stand. Mike, worst ground? I'm with Taylor here again. It's uh, AFC Wimbledon. I think if you ever have to see a picture of someone hugging a tree to get a decent vantage point, I think that should be really safe for environmental protests. But, you know, the yeah, it's not a great stadium, is it? And it's um, basically four sheds intertwined to each other. But uh, like, like they say, I hope, do hope they are a, a team on a, on the very clear upward curve and, uh, and I hope that continues because they're, uh, you know, they should be a second team for a lot of a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So let's roll these two together then. Um, most difficult opponent and not necessarily from the same team, best performance by an opposition player. So who's impressed you as a team and as an individual that we've played this season? Michael. Right, uh, I've so, slight, interpreted this slightly differently. Most difficult opponents for us, I think, were Northampton. They were a real handful. They were. Uh, there's a technical way of describing them that would get this podcast uh, blacklisted, um, <laughs> but but it ends in house and starts with S. <laughs> and John Joe O'Toole absolutely embodies everything about Northampton being a really difficult team to beat, and, and we couldn't beat them. They've been relegated, but we couldn't beat them. But for me, the best performance by an opposition player, was Jack Byrne for Oldham, who I just think taught Richie Smallwood how to command a midfield and made Peter Whittingham look entirely redundant. So there we are, two clubs, one who, both of them, we never managed to beat in the course of the season that we got promoted and they both got relegated. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Jack Byrne that day just ran the midfield. It's almost like he had a point to prove, isn't it? It's quite quite extraordinary. (laughs) Scott, what's your take? Similar teams, really. I think Oldham proved to be a bit of a... A problem for us. I think in that first match away, it was a very poor performance from us overall. So that played into their hands, and then they obviously just nicked the winner. But then that first half performance of those at Ewood, I know we were all a bit annoyed that Rovers weren't there, but they came out all guns firing. Um, and who, who was the forward? Is it Nazan? Duckins? Nazan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who came out and scored two great goals, and you know, took them well. We're, we're all having a go at ourselves but you know they're not getting ourselves in front against a lower team lower down in the division but you know you've got to give credit where it's due and in that first half Oldham were, were pretty good. Tom who impressed you? I'm going to have to take a, um, a leaf out of Mr Lapp's book and um, agree with Mr Taylor because I thought that um, Northampton were fantastic both games against us especially at home at Ewood should I say I thought they were fantastic there and Jack Byrne as well that game against Oldham, he was um, on another level. I, I remember seeing him in the League Cup tie away at Mansfield and thinking he's going to be an absolute superstar. <laughs> well, but we'll come on to best podcast pundit later on, which proves I, I know bugger all. Mr. Delap, then, just to round this section off. I am going to go with a slightly different flavour. 
I was very impressed purely for that 90 minutes by Bristol Rovers when we played them at home in, I'm, and you're going to catch me here somewhere, somewhere between November and December time. Uh, it was the game that we won 2-1, but it was an absolute real struggle. I thought they suffocated us that game. I thought they made life very difficult. And I also thought they looked very dangerous on the counter as well. And I, to be fair, on a, on a complete side point as well, I actually thought that was a game which proved that we might be ending up near the top because somehow we ended up winning a game that I thought we looked very ordinary in. And as for a best performance by an opposition player, I'm going to put a shout out to Plymouth's Graham Carey, who uh, in, in fact, both games that we've played against Plymouth, they were undefeated against us. I thought uh, looked absolutely a cut above anybody else on the pitch that was playing on either night or afternoon mm, I think his, his price might be um, might have gone up during the season because he, he scored an absolute thronker at Ewood it was, a, it was a fabulous goal there we go, right, thanks for that chaps um, we'll take a little break now and then we'll come back in the next section shortly It's my great pleasure in this section of the podcast to give a warm welcome back to the Lancashire Telegraph's Rovers reporter and friend of the pod, Rich Sharp. Rich, thanks for dropping by again. Uh, how are you this evening? Yeah, found me very well, thank you very much. And so you should be, I guess. How does this season rank, then, in your reporting career so far? Um, well, it's not uh, it's not had much competition, sadly. Um, I had back-to-back relegations on my CV with, uh, with crew, and then my first season at Rovers obviously going down, so... Thankfully, a first uh, a first promotion to be covered, and uh, yeah, it's been a real real privilege this season. Um, makes everything worthwhile, all the hard work, the late nights, um, to just sharing that that night at Doncaster is something that uh, yeah, I'll certainly never forget. Yeah, it was terrific, wasn't it? Although the season didn't start out too well, so maybe your your influence was brought to bear for the first few games. <laughs> yeah. Not uh, not the best start, was it? Looking back, but um, yeah, they've certainly got stronger. As Mowbray said all along, to be fair to him, he um, he stuck to his guns when there were a few doubts out there, and um, it came out after that Plymouth home game. And I remember speaking to him in a corridor at Ewood, and uh, he said then he was confident that, that they'd improve as the season goes on, and uh, you certainly can't doubt him, given um, when you look back how they, how they've done since then. No, the the record books will show that uh, what was it? One game in one loss in thirty three in the end, I think. Before yeah, it's, uh, yeah, an eighteen and a and a fourteen, I think, in unbeaten runs in there. It's been um, been Pretty quite impressive. incredible. Absolutely, and I I think that's the thing really. When a lot of people will look back and say, "Oh well, Blackburn Rovers in League One, they should have done it." But for me, it's it's the style and the way that they've done it. There's there's a way to get promoted when you, when you're tipped as the favourites, um, and I think given where Rovers have come from in, in the past and instilling that winning mentality, which everyone was questioning whether the, the club could find that again um, after those early few games. And the way they've gone about it has, has been the most impressive thing for me. Casting your mind back to August, what was the, the mood in the camp then? Was everybody pre-season uniformly positive or were there, yeah. did you pick up any lingering doubts? No, from from the first moment I went to um, went to Brockwell on the, on the, when the players came back in June, they just they just felt a, a different feel around Brockwell than than I had I'd felt for a while. That everybody was positive. There were smiles on faces. You could see they'd spent some money on bringing players in. That they were desperate to do well for the club. They seem enthused by everything that Mowbray was trying to build. And obviously there was that feel good factor of the manager staying on as well. So everything really did feel feel good around the club. I think. 
those first two games are just a real wake-up call, to be honest, for everybody on, on what was going to be required to to get themselves out of this division. It certainly was. I mean, from from the fans' perspective, I mean, we had the the all-time low, I think, away at Oldham with the "You're not fit to wear the shirts" chant, which it kind of you know you sympathised to a point, but there have been many, many heavier and many worse away defeats that I've seen with my own two eyes. What what do you think changed after that game, or is is that the wrong benchmark? Did you spot something that uh, that happened that was different shortly yeah. thereafter? I think. Um... I've got a piece with with Moby that I've, I've not run yet. You know, I think he called the Oldham game a watershed moment, um, and he, his comments were something along the lines of, "I, I realised then that we needed to stop allowing teams who were who hadn't got better players than us, giving them as much respect and, and giving them as much as the ball as they were." And from that moment on, they really set about teams and um, they pushed higher up the pitch um, and just got more attacking players on the pitch and really just tried to to go toe to toe with teams um and and that's that's really where they've they've paid off i think the loss of Lenham, you can think about his his defending defensive attributes and everything that he brings but it's just that pace and mobility around the pitch and i think that's where paul downing is really for me an unsung hero because i know elliot ward had his critics but it, it was a decent defender but what rovers had to do with him and mulgrew in the team was was defend that bit deeper and Everything was ten yards further back, and Rovers were playing more without the ball um, than with it. You think about the away wins at Scunthorpe, where they were, where they were digging in, and contrast that to to when they blew away um, Oxford in that opening twenty minutes. They went to Blackpool and put four past them. Berry, Rochdale. You think back to all those days, and that's when Rovers really went at, went at teams from from the first whistle, and that that was the the probably big thing that changed it for me. Just something as simply as moving 10 yards further up the pitch and they managed to get the likes of Dak and um, I mean Chapman was there and obviously that Antonson run when he was flying in October and November and just just really that for me was was a real shift in mentality um, coupled with the work rate that we'd obviously seen in that Bradford the third game of the season when I think the penny dropped then that um, if we're going to if we're wanting to play our football in this division we've We've got a scrap and battle against the best of them, and for me, that was a, a real change in the, in the season as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you're right to point that those games where we're putting three and four goals in away from home, it certainly seemed to to, to mark, as you say, a, a change in style. The interesting thing for me was in the January window because we'd lost Chapman to injury, Antonson had sort of come in to do the quick man up front that defenders won't want running at him role, and then he got injured. And then we brought in Adam Armstrong. How long had Armstrong been on Tony Mowbray's radar? Do you know, Rich? Yeah, I, th- I think from from last summer he was clearly somebody that um, that Mowbray would have wanted if he could have got him in. Um, the thing for for Newcastle, obviously, they'd seen him do well for under Mowbray with Coventry, but he'd had an indifferent time with Barnsley, and I think for them they probably saw the Championship again with Bolton as um, as an opportunity for him to. To probably try and prove himself in the championship again. I know Rovers were after that similar type player to, to Chapman um, if they could get him, but there aren't many people like Harry Chapman about, which was obviously for Rovers to find him was um, was a real acquisition. And then the same with Armstrong. I think just that ability to go out in January and, and bring somebody like him was a statement of intent that we can we can do this where other teams probably can't. And yeah. that was particularly in the January transfer window. Amari Bell's probably one for, you know, a future more long term 
project with him, obviously competing with Derek Williams. But certainly the signing of Armstrong was a, we need to add this type of player and, and we can go out there and get him. And full credit to Mowbray, was, he was probably the decisive factor uh, in that uh, in that move. Absolutely. I think the, the major difference between ourselves and Shrewsbury is, uh, is resources. Shrewsbury, I think, over the last few weeks in particular, have been hampered by injuries and suspensions. And, of course, they mm. have the run to the checker trade. We were able to bring those extra players in, and that certainly mm-hmm. counted. I mean, I know we'll, we'll come on to last Saturday in the team selection in just a second, but uh, I think uh, Rovers' strength in depth is, is what has enabled us to just eventually wear Shrewsbury down, which is uh, which is terrific stuff. If I, I know everyone says about Rovers' resources, but we can't overlook the fact that Lenehan missed what did he miss seven months? A regular regular starter, so Rovers have hardly had the first choice centre back partnership out there. Chapman would have become a regular if the season would have gone on. Yeah, we've seen Whittingham hamper by injuries. Antonson, we saw Dak at the start of the season with the hamstring injuries. So this has been a squad effort from Rovers. You look at the likes of Paul Downing who've come in, um, and along the way. So Rovers have certainly not been without their injury worries throughout this season, and uh, people have stepped up when they've needed to be, and they've answered the call uh, when they needed to be. When there's been da- any doubts about this side, they've, they've quashed them. They've, they've never gone three without a win. Every time they've, they've been dropping points, they've responded. So they've shown a lot of character, this resilience, this team, under, under the intense pressure that they've been on. And that's... Um, that's another a real sign of a, a quality side for me. Yeah, the the away game at Peterborough was the one I think where, that made me sit up and take notice. Where even though they went a goal down, I, I always felt that we're going to get yeah. back into this. Yeah, we, we're we're just too good to not win this game. And I know they came back at the end to give us our standard hairy last five or ten minutes. Yeah. My God, we've had a few of those this season. But that was uh, that was an absolute corking performance. What was your uh, what's your most memorable performance? So that, that fifteen minutes at Peterborough won't be far off. That that blitz at the start of the second half was um, was really up there. And the Peterborough home game as well will will be one that I'll always remember. Just for. The atmosphere of Ewood, that reminded me of the days when I used to go as a lad with my dad and, and yeah. watch from the stands and remember feeling Ewood like that. And to be able to sit there on, on my laptop and feel that, that atmosphere around, that, that was uh, was a really big one, as was the Shrewsbury game as well. The um, Just those games when the, when the crowd get involved, I think it, it adds that extra 10 or 15%. And you always back Rovers on those big, those big game players at this level. Um, your likes of Mulgrew, Dak and Graham. Have really shone in those games when um, when they've needed to win, and it's probably been a while since you've been able to say that a Rovers side have been able to come up with the goods when needed, and um, they're the difference makers in in this division. And thankfully, they've uh, they've come good when Rovers have needed them. So, uh, put to bed the rumours. Um, there's one or two cynics and sceptics out there. Uh, last Saturday. All these players, they've been playing, carrying injuries. They didn't just suddenly decide to go out on a night out and uh, throw the title away. <laughs> I thought this, uh, I knew this would come. Well, <laughs> if, I'd, um, if I don't know if, if there's coverage out there, but if anybody can watch the second half from Doncaster, you, David Rea was was limping his way through it. He, he could hardly kick the ball. I know Lennon a couple of times went to, to take goal kicks and free kicks in deep position, which Rea would normally take. And... Uh, he has been one that's been struggling. Derek Williams as well. You look at, uh, did he come off at Peterborough? Armstrong, to be fair, he's, he's had hamstring injuries. The, the real killer for Rovers was the um, the week where they had Gillingham away on the Tuesday and Bristol on the Saturday. I know Mowbray's touched on it briefly, but they had awful travel travel problems on um, in that week with 
getting to and from Gillingham and to and from Bristol, which I'll not bore you and go into, but um, that really hampered a few of the players with, with the muscle injuries, um, and that's what we've seen at, at various times. So Williams come off against um, come off against P- Peter Bradinti towards the end when yeah. Amari Bell came on. So, and he's another one. He played 59 consecutive games, and I think he'd missed 10 minutes all season. So. These players have played a lot of games and, and Dak with his hamstring as well. He'll not play this weekend. Been for a scan today, suffered with that in in training. Um and I didn't think to be fair Dak should have played at um, at Gillingham or Bristol. I thought he was he was struggling there. Um I was amazed football. he started amazed. Yeah. I think if it probably was anybody but Gillingham, then it probably wouldn't, yeah. but Mowbray said he'd passed all the tests to, to play, but he'd have probably been eager to play. Yes. Yeah, and I think I think you've got to give I know um, people were disappointed on um, on Saturday. Probably the, the funny thing for me was people saying, "I feel sorry for the people that travelled." But judging by the away end on Saturday, I mean, I wasn't part of it, but uh, they seem to to have still quite a good uh, good afternoon themselves. But yeah, Dak. I mean, he struggled with his hamstrings all season. I don't think he particularly should have played in those games. If he gets injured again, then we saw the impact. If you don't get a good pre-season under your belt, then then what impact that can have moving yeah. forward? So. I know, I know people are disappointed. They, they still got a chance at the title. I know people were disappointed on Saturday, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a duff 11 they put out. Um, I know, um, there, there were changes, but there was no way Raya could have played for me given what we'd seen a few days before. Bennett, another one. Bennett's played every minute since, uh, he's come back from suspension pretty much. Um, and Danny Graham as well. When does Danny Graham play three games in a week, particularly away from home? Yeah, uh, and I guess we'll probably see with the team selection this weekend. I mean, I don't think this is something that can be labelled at Rovers for chucking the game or anything. These players have been playing through it, and Raya in particular. You don't change your goalkeeper just for needs be. He's not a sentimental guy, Mowbray. He's not just giving Lutweiler a chance. There's, yeah. there's no way that there's no way that Raya could have played. And as Mowbray said on Friday, he said these players are wanting to play. It's him that's having to to rein him in and think back. about the yeah. think about the long term. So yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see how you always get people when when you make changes. But um, we wouldn't be Rovers well, fans if we didn't love a good conspiracy theory, though. <laughs> well, and I know we've we've dealt with it. You're all you're always going to get it, aren't you? There's there's no way that unless you go and and show scans or things like that, and people see see training. And to be fair, like Mowbray's not going to mention these things. In games, really, you know, in in the lead up to games before, right. he's not he's not going to come out before Doncaster and say we've got four playing yeah. like um, playing through the pain, yeah, yeah. and he's probably not going to come out and say that on the record to fans and and explain. But certainly, Dak, I mean, he's got hamstring injury. He, you're not going to mess about with it. He's had three or four separate ones throughout the course of the season. We've seen what happened with Chapman when he tried to probably come back too soon and Dak's too too big a player to, to mess about with with an injury that, that can can be severe so yes we'll see with the team on Saturday if Bennett and Williams play Bennett and Williams play Crane was on the bench and came on we're not going to see Conway we're not going to see Dak and then probably not Raya so f- for me I don't think there's particularly too much of a story if there was I'd be the one trying to dig into it but uh <laughs> having been around it I think um yeah, they were they were safe enough for me. And the yeah. people that have come in, I mean, Amari Bell was PFA League One left back of the year. He's come in for for Williams, so no real one there. I'd have probably played Travis rather than Caddis, but there, there's another one there. Downing for me has been one of the unsung heroes. So you've got three three decent centre backs in there. And up front, Samuel Armstrong, 
and paying. So I don't. And so two two of those are Premier League loanees, and the other one you spent five hundred grand in the yeah. summer. So it it wasn't a chuck away to And they they dominated the game. They lost a, a shot it in a lad's back. They wasn't even facing it. Look, Miles made one save. Um, and Rovers didn't play well for the first 45 minutes, but probably agreed they didn't come away with a point. So, yeah, if there'd, if there'd have been a lack of effort or something like that, I, I could have probably seen, I'd have probably been more critical myself, but it was within his rights for, for the team that he did pick. Yeah, I think it had we had a situation where, as you say, Dak's hamstring went and he was out for August and wasn't back until September or something. And you have a yeah. couple of dodgy results at the beginning of the season, then he'd have been like exactly. Bastard, so yeah, you're damned if you, you do, do, and damned if you don't. I think in that, yeah, in that role. if you don't if you don't get your fitness up in pre-season, you, you see players struggle to catch it up. So particularly somebody like Dak, who Rose again next season will be will be turning to to be their their man at the key moments. I think uh, keeping him fresh is going to be uh, going to be key. So any whispers about what might happen in the summer? I know Tony and Steve Waggett are planning to go out to India. Have you heard anything on the inside track? No, I think I think they've been planning for some time. Obviously, with with budgets, um, one for League One, one for the Championship, which they're obviously probably going to go with now. But um, story in tomorrow, so tomorrow's Tuesday. The story in the paper saying um, they're going to all be fleshed out when they go. Um, I th- the, the advantage for me is that. Waggett and Mowbray are obviously going to go out and speak to them face to face. So it's much easier to do that than you know any calls or anything like that, or going through somebody else to speak to the owners. Yeah. Mowbray and Waggett can go and say, "This is what we're up against. This is what we need. Can we really? Can we work to something?" And I think the days of here's a transfer kit to go and spend it how you want. I'm not really sure it works like that. I think how it'll work for Rovers is. Mowbray will know the parameters that he's working within, but I think he'll go and identify players, put together a portfolio of who they're looking to bring in, and then say to the owners, "This, this is what it's going to cost. Can we do it?" Kind of thing. Yeah. So, I think that'll be on a on a case by case basis. They've done a lot of work behind the scenes on recruitment with a talent ID spotting program that Mowbray's really tried to implement, which I know he used a lot at West Brom for. He's talked about the likes of Malumbo and Morrison and Brunt, who were, you know, players not really on the radar, but uh, but coming good. And I think for me, it'd be wrong for for Rovers fans, and I don't think many expect them to go out and spend a shed load of money, but just something to make the team competitive moving forward. I think consolidating in the Championship is, has got to yeah, be the goal, hasn't it? I mean, I can't think off the top of my head where Rovers finishing positions before they did go down last year, but they weren't particularly punching anywhere near mid-table. It was lower mid-table and down, wasn't it, really, for, for the last few years. It's been a Yeah, it's the one good, the one good season under Gary Bowyer. Yeah, exactly. But And then you look at when you look at that team now, um, what Rovers would give for um, for some of those moving forward that, that were in that side. But, um, yeah, they, I mean, they've got a mixture of players who've played in the Championship and then the likes of, of Dak and Amari Bell and people like that, you know, coming through the leagues in League One. So... I think it'll be an interesting summer as it always is. Mowbray said it's just as key this summer as it was last season, last summer when he went to India. Um, so I think I think until then we'll we'll just have to have to wait and see. But um, I think the way that the owners have, have worked under Mowbray, and Steve Waggett strikes me as a really impressive figure. I think since he's come in, what he's said and what he's done has um, has really struck a chord with me. And uh, so yeah, hopefully they go down there and um, and they can get the answers that uh, that they want. 
Yeah, we've got an impressive set of youngsters coming through as well, of course. Yeah, so, uh, uh, I mean, that's been one of the... On that as well. Yeah, one of the stories this season for me, the, the 23s. Um, and it, it's interesting what, they, what they'll do with them as well, because I spoke to Damien Johnson about it, and he was saying there was no real focus on doing well in the under-23s league. They've not held people back from going out on loan. It's just that really clubs in, in League One don't really want to take you know players from League One. Like when Rovers were in the Championship, they were looking to the Premier League for loans. So yeah. these lads have probably been overlooked because people thought they're just you know League One academy players when really they're far from it. So maybe in the summer we'll see some movement on them. But obviously Rovers have um, might have eyes for, for some of those been in and around the first team. Mm. So that, that's another... An interesting one for the summer. They'll probably go away for for pre-season and whether a few of those are involved there and um, and take it from there. So and they're starting from a decent base, aren't they? You look at the goalkeeper, the back four, a few central midfield options. It's really the attacking options I think that um, they're going to have to look at when when the lone players go back. They're the real areas that yeah. um, they're going to have to focus most of their attention on. They they cost money, um, goal scorers and. Um, attacking players to, to create chances are the ones that cost the money, so they're going to be the ones that they're going to have to be uh, going to have to be clever with, really. I think. Yeah, I think that raw pace that uh, initially Anton, well, initially Chapman, then Antonson, then Armstrong, as we say, brought. That's what's hard to replicate. So, Danny Graham has guile, and I, I dare say he's good for at least one more season. But yeah. you wouldn't want to rely on him for forty odd games and your cup games and all the rest of it. I feel for Dominic Samuel. I have to say, he just seems to in one of those spells at the moment where nothing's going right for him but if they, if he can capture some kind of form again you know, it'd be nice to, to, to get him back but I'm really looking forward to one or two of those youngsters breaking through I know Lewis Travis had uh, had a few appearances last season there's nothing like a young player coming through the ranks to get the home supporters uh, I think cheering you know, when we've had the likes of uh, Dunn and Duff in recent years that's uh, yeah. had so much more so but, you're, you're you're looking forward to a restful summer then, Rich? Or? If I had a pound for everybody says, what do you do when the season finishes <laughs> until it starts again? I think they just think I sit there and do uh, do absolutely nothing. But uh, it's probably busier and, uh, and more work because um, there's obviously not many people around, but more stories breaking left, yeah. right and centre and to, to squeeze a few weeks off for, for holiday in there as well. But um this summer, you, you're looking forward to, to seeing what happens. At me, as much as as much as the fans, I know uh, the fans love transfer stories and things like that. And it feels sometimes like the games are just to try and work out who you want to sign in the, in the next yes. transfer window, <laughs> just finding the gaps in the squad from from what you're missing in those uh, in those games. But I, I certainly think a few a few decent additions with what um, with like what we saw last season, just to. To really see Rovers being able to invest in and buy footballers rather than you know relying on on loans and and the free transfer market, I think just that ability to bring in extra quality, which you get when you pay money for footballers, and you'd like to think that uh, the owners have seen just what some not major investment, but um, what where where some money can go. Yeah. Um, and I think Rovers have really got to capitalise on this feel-good factor. I think people around the club know that. Yeah. Um, season season ticket sales will be the next barometer, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think even Venky's biggest opposition within the Rovers fans can, can't argue that they've been badly advised along the way. And hopefully with, with that advice now coming from, from Mowbray and, and Steve Waggett, you'd like to think that things can get back on, a, um, on an even keel and 
we can start focusing more on what's happening on a Saturday at three o'clock and on Tuesday night for, for the club to really move forward. I think this is a, a, a big a big chance for um, for at least some of that to, yeah. to happen moving forward. Yeah, I think just uh, I, I cast my eyes around the crowd at Doncaster and uh, seeing the younger generation of uh, sort of experiencing oh, success for the yeah. first time. Uh, my first promotion from the third division was the 74-75 team. Yeah. I remember then I was as proud of them as I was of the 94-95 side. <laughs> it's just, yeah, exactly. you know, your perspective as a 10, as a 11-year-old is fundamentally different, but uh, it was just great seeing some of the wide eyes. Yeah, I was I was four when they won the when they won the Premier League title, and one of the biggest reasons I started following Rovers was because of that, even though yeah. I wasn't from the area. Yeah, so, yeah. and then I look back to to growing up with further on to your Duffs and your your, your Duns, like you've said, and people are now going to look to to Dak and Chapman and Armstrong, and that, that's been a great thing for me to see more like young fans actually enjoying going to not not just young fans people enjoying going back to Ewood and watching the team play because they know they know what they're going to get and there's a lot of skill and talent in that row with that side but they, they do work blooming hard indeed I think that, that's what Moby says he's, he's a, from a working class area and I think he just gets the club and, and what the fans want and that that's the bare minimum to run around and tackle and, and chase people and um, and if you've got that a little bit of extra magic dust at the top end of the pitch, it can make a real difference. And I think Rovers are going to need the fans more than ever next season because they're going to be under the cosh um, at times. And we've seen the, the fans drag them through at times this season. And yeah. hopefully we can see the same again next year. Well, Rich, thank you very much once again for dropping by the pod. It's very kind of you. We do appreciate it. Uh, your insight is, is incredibly invaluable to us. Obviously, we have the fans' eye view, but you just to bring that extra little nuance to it so thank you once again sir have a great summer um we'll doubtless be pestering you again at the beginning of this the season wanting to know who's going to come in on the transfer window which of course is earlier this year isn't it so we'll uh, yeah we'll need to get cracking so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah maybe not too much rest <laughs> well have a great holiday recharge your batteries my friend and thank you very much once again for joining us thank you for having me That's the end of part one, but join us in part two, where we'll continue to round up the season and we'll give out our Collaboration Pod special awards. Royalty-free music used in this episode was sourced from www.bensound.com.